Father, may your word be our rule. May your spirit be our guide. And above everything, we pray that Jesus Christ would be our chief concern. Even so, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. John chapter 10, starting at verse 1. This is Jesus speaking. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way as a thief and a robber. The one who enters the gate is the good shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they might have a life and have it to the full. Or many of us know this by I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. And the sheep or the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The, the man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for his sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this pen, sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and they... And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. That's where we'll stop. Uh, as ha- does happen sometimes when I prepare for sermons, I thought this was going to go in one direction, and it's gone in a completely dire- different direction over the last few days. And what I feel the Spirit leading me to do is to really focus in on verse 10. The verse that says, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full, or I've come that they might have life and have it abundantly. Now when you stop and you think about that line, I have come, that they might have life and they might have it abundantly. It is an incredible summary statement by Jesus himself of what Jesus believes his mission to be. Jesus is saying, this is the reason that I came. This is the reason I showed up. This is the reason that I departed from the side of the Father. I have come that they, my sheep, might have life. And not just life, not just eking something out, not just making it, but they have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. Now, the Greek word for abundant is the word perisos. Parasos, I think that's how you say it. Parasos, it's got this broad meaning here. It can mean all around, excess, more than, abundantly, beyond what is anticipated, exceeding expectation, going past the limit. This is the kind of life that Jesus said that he came for, the kind of life that is beyond what is expected, that is exceeding expectation, that is going past the expected limit. So, 
if this is the life that Jesus came for, there's an obvious question. What exactly is the abundant life? Like we can use all those descriptors, descriptors, right? It's a life that is beyond, that is all around, that is excess, that it is beyond what is anticipated and exceeding expectation. We can use all that, but okay, what does that actually mean? If Jesus came for this, this kind of life, it seems that we should spend some time trying to figure out exactly what that life looks like. But as I thought about that this week, there becomes a problem. And it's a problem that often happens when you have these big concepts and these big ideas. That the minute you try to actually describe it and define it is the moment you almost sterilize it. Right? And and what we know is that Jesus didn't even define it. He just said, I've come that you might have life and that you would have it abundantly. The end. Moving on. I am the good shepherd. He simply... He simply states this fact, this is why I've come, but it's a really odd thing that he doesn't describe any more about what that kind of life looks like. Because it seems like if this is really why Jesus came, if this is his purpose for leaving the Father's side, then he would want to be more clear about what it actually is so that we know that we're moving towards it or we're achieving it on some level. And, and actually that, that thinking, the thinking that this ought to be more clearly defined, fits well into our culture because we live in a culture that likes to have things neatly defined. We like to be very clear about expectations and order and and hierarchy and pathways and where like we like to have these things all clearly defined. And there's a place for that. Don't get me wrong, there's absolutely a place where goals ought to be outlined in a way that is shared and understood, where expectations are clear for all people so that there are, nobody is surprised or there isn't a miscommunication of some sort. There's, there's absolutely a place for that. But I think there's also this truth that the more clearly we define something, the more we run the risk of stripping the thing of the potential to surprise us. The more we run the risk of not being able to think outside the box. So for example, we're moving into this time of renewal over the course of the next 16, 17 weeks. And, and there's a lot of question, and I think it's a good question. What exactly do you mean by renewal? I, th- I think this is a fair question. It's a question I've heard. It's a question I know a number of p- other people have heard. People on the renewal team have heard this. Like, what do you mean? When you say renewal, when you say that God wants to renew something in our life, like, what are we, what are we talking about here? And there's a des- desire to have it clearly defined what renewal is. You know? Is it restoring something that was? I- I- is it bringing something new? that never existed before? Is it furthering something that already exists or building upon some foundation that we've previously established? And I think the answer to that is yes. Yeah. And possibly something altogether different. The older I get, the more, the more hesitant I get to, to give answers. And, 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 and I used to want to answer questions. This used to be a big part of who I, how I thought about myself, that I wanted to be able to give good, clear answers because, here's, here's the broken side of me, because it made me look smart and, and made me feel like I 
had a place, that I belonged, that I was necessary because I was the one who could provide the answers. But I've grown to understand that me trying to look good is not necessarily a good thing and in fact, some, many, many times is a bad thing because in particular in this type of situation, it robs people of doing their own work and even more tragically, robs the spirit of doing something for the individual. And so I'm hesitant to give answers. I'm hesitant to clearly define things in certain situations. And I also understand that this sounds very postmodern and wishy-washy and like, dude, just take a stand on something. But I actually think this kind of ambiguity is a good thing, and I think that this ambiguity is that there's something of Jesus within the ambiguity. Take this morning's passage, for example. Jesus here in this passage, for much of the passage, is speaking in metaphor, right? He says things like, I am the good shepherd, or I am the gates. We also would, might know that as, I am the door, right? So, so let's just start there. These are the metaphors that Jesus is using to describe himself. Is Jesus a door? N- no, no, he's not. Is Jesus a shepherd? No, he's a carpenter, remember? Yeah. I love what Eugene Peterson, Eugene Peterson, the pastor who passed away recently, he said, uh, he said metaphors are quite literally a lie, right? Jesus is not a shepherd. Jesus is not a door or a gate. You, surprise, surprise, are not salt, right? When you walk into a dark room, your luminescent personality does not cause the lights to go on and others to be able to see, right? Metaphors are literally not true. And that, by its very nature, makes metaphors imprecise. In in the Gospel of John, Jesus makes seven I am statements, and every single one of them is a metaphor, right? I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am a door or the gate, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the vine. Each of those gives us a picture of how Jesus understood himself and understood his work that the Father sent him to do, and each of those is incredibly imprecise. Each of those metaphors opens itself up to be understood in multiple different ways, and some of them even seem contradictory to each other, right? So Jesus says, I am the gate, or I am the door, and for one person, that could mean that Jesus is the way into something. For another person, it means Jesus is the way out of something. For still another person, it means that Jesus is the way in and out. And it might be that Jesus is one of those, and it might be that Jesus is all of those, and it might be that there's something else there that we're not quite picking up on. The, the door might be a means of protection. It's not a way or in or out, but it's a way that we protect. Right? The metaphor opens itself up to multiple interpretations and is incredibly imprecise. Which might actually be the point. If Jesus wanted precision, he could have given us precision. He could have said with bullet points, this is what I, who I am, this is what I've come to do, this is what this will look like, these are my expectations for you, this is how you should understand me, this is how you should relate to what I'm doing, this is what you should do in your life. Right? Like he could speak with a certain level of precision that would make all of this much more clear for us, but instead Jesus chooses to use metaphor. 
And I think one of the reasons that Jesus chooses to use metaphor is because despite metaphors being incredibly imprecise, metaphors force us to participate in them. Right? Metaphors are, in, in, in many ways, a compressed story. But it's a compressed story that we write. Right? We're bringing something to it. So Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And immediately, our minds have to begin to fill in the blanks of what that means. And we base that on our understandings, on our experiences, and on our, our, on our own imagination. So when he says, I am the good shepherd, we have to go, okay, well, what would a good shepherd do? Well, a good shepherd would probably make sure that the sheep are well-fed, that they have green pastures, that they have water, that they can go and that they can drink at, that they're protected, that the uh, predators are kept at bay or, or, or uh, warded off in some way, that if I get lost, the shepherd is going to come find me. These are the things that a good shepherd does. But the only way that that understanding is brought to the metaphor is if we bring it. It's not there on its own. On its own, it simply says, Jesus, it's Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd. And that's not true. On its own, the metaphor has nothing to author. It offer. It only has breadth and dimension because we participate in it, because we bring a story and an understanding of what that metaphor is pointing to. And the moment we show up and participate in that metaphor with our full imagination is the moment that that metaphor explodes with possibility. Again, Peterson is helpful here, and he says this, Jesus used metaphors that get us into action, thinking and praying with all our soul and mind and strength in the stuff of family and finance, caring for the earth and protesting injustice, worshiping God and repenting of our sins. Jesus spoke in metaphors. Imprecise. Even untrue metaphors in order that they might be made true as we participate in and bring all of this meaning and all of this imagination to them. And right before, right between two metaphors, I am the gate and I am the good shepherd is this phrase, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. In between these two imprecise, undefined metaphors is an undefined word, abundantly. Dangling out there. (laughs) As if it's waiting for us to use our imagination for what that might mean. What would the abundant life look like? Maybe the point is that we show up to that statement that is undefined and not clarified so that we might participate in imagining what it looks like. I've often seen this phrase, I've come that they might have life and have it abundantly. I've seen it explained, preached on, uh, defined in two ways typically. Number one is that there's a a move to make sure that we understand that the abundant life is not simply a material thing, right? The abundant life is not material, it's spiritual. And so the abundant life doesn't mean that we get the American dream. It's not about health and wealth and cash and cars and success and vacations, but rather the abundant life is a spiritual reality in which the richness of God's blessings are extended to us and we experience them through Jesus Christ. 
And yes, absolutely, the abundant life is that. The other way that I hear the abundant life talking about is that the abundant life is not the finite life that we experience as human beings where death is a reality, right? We have 70, 80 years, life ends, but in Christ we have the abundant life because it continues on. It is no longer finite, but it now goes on into eternity and we continue to live in Christ, These are the two ways in which this abundant life is most often talked about. The problem with that, well, the problem with that is it's like ethereal, right? It's the spiritual blessings. Yes, it is spiritual blessings, but that's the way it's focused on. And it's not necessarily for this life, but the life to come. And in context, that actually doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You've been here at For any length of time, you know that I am a huge proponent on taking Bible passages in context. It's one of the reasons we read large swaths of Scripture on Sunday morning. It's one of the reasons that we preach through entire books of the Bible, because we want to understand the context, because context often informs meanings in ways where if you just take a chunk of verses and read them, you miss out on. And so if you just take these 16 verses and read them, you can come to one conclusion. But in the context... Well, I think we begin to see that these, this abundant life isn't just a spiritual thing. Thing, Excuse me. So the context of John chapter 10, and stay with me, this is going to get heady. The context of John chapter 10 is that it follows John chapter 9. Are you with me? Okay, tracking. In John chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples are walking along. They come across a man who had been born blind. And the disciples ask Jesus, who sinned that this man was born blind? Was it him or was it his, his parents? And Jesus says, no, 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 th- neither. In fact, this man was born blind so that the glory and the power of God might be revealed to you today. And then Jesus heals the man and restores his sight. Jesus and his disciples kind of move off scene and it becomes this, this sort of conflict, this tension-riddled scene where the Pharisees, the, the, the religious leaders of the day, are trying to figure out how in the world Jesus healed this man. And in fact, it did, did Jesus heal this man? And so they call him before him and they're talking with him and they talk with his parents and like, what's going on here? Trying to wrap our minds around it. It's got that famous line when the man says, listen, I, all I know is I was blind, but now I see. Right? So the religious leaders give this man a hard time about the fact that he was healed by Jesus. Jesus gets wind of the fact that the Pharisees have been doing this. So he comes to the man and he begins to talk with the man and tell him that I am the son of man, all this sort of stuff. And what we're told right at the end of chapter 9 is that the Pharisees are with Jesus. or they're, with, they're in the scene. They're with Jesus and the blind man as they're having this conversation. And there's no break between that, not, that scene And what comes? If you look at John chapter 10, verse 1, very truly I tell you Pharisees. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees who are there in the midst of this conversation with a man who was healed of his blindness. Context tells us that the abundant life that Jesus is talking about is about that kind of life. The kind of life where you were blind but now you see. And not just a spiritual blindness, but an actual blindness because Jesus gave that man the abundant life that he came for. I have come that they, my sheep, might have abundant life. I've come so that man can see. 
The abundant life is for the blind, it's for the poor, it's for the lame, it's for the outcast, it's for the looked down upon, it's for the broken, it's for the sick. It's for those of us who are living right here, right now. I have come. You might have life, and you would have it abundantly. So I ask again, use your imagination. Participate in in the words of Jesus. What does the abundant life look like? I sometimes find it helpful to make sure that I'm in the right frame of reference, particularly for questions like this. Because here's what I know about myself. That I'm a selfish individual who's easily seduced by the trinkets of this world. I like stuff. I like new stuff. I like to accumulate stuff, particularly backpacking and hunting gear. I just think it's cool. I may not use it, but I want to show it off to you. I like stuff. And so... There are times in which my mind can go down when I think about abundant life and wouldn't it be great if, and that's where my mind goes. And so I have to constantly pull myself back and put myself in the right frame of reference. And I feel that being morbid is really helpful here. Maybe I'm not the only one, but this is what I find. So Ecclesiastes says, better go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. So let's go to the house of mourning for just a little bit. Imagine you are on your deathbed. In that moment, how do you define the abundant life? Ask it another way. In that moment, what would your life have to, what would your life had to have looked like in order for you to say, my life was full. My life was abundant. It exceeded expectation. It was beyond what I anticipated. How would you define that? My guess is that you, like me, would not point to stuff. I mean, we talk about that often in church, but it's worth acknowledging. And, and even for me, as I thought about it, it wouldn't even be the exceptional things. Right? Some of the some of the experiences we've had, the places that we've gotten to travel, I, 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 those would be great, but I don't think that those would be the things that would define the, the abundant, the full life, the exceedingly more life. In all likelihood, and where I go on my best days is that it goes to, it goes to relationships. Did I love well? Were my relationships a place of belonging, both for me and for others? Was I known? Like truly known? Did I know others and and really know them and care about them? Was I open to the possibility of being wrong? And by that I mean, did I learn and change and explore? Was I curious about the world? 
Did I forgive as freely as I have been forgiven? Did I give attention to the things that truly mattered most or was I, was I distracted by the task list? And for me, when I use my imagination to think about what the abundant life looks like, that's what it looks like. I don't, and, and even in that, I, it's, it's not a clear picture, right? Like I can't point to like these are the things that have to happen. It's more of a, it's more of a feeling. It's more of a hope. It's, it's, it's a stirring inside of me. But, but whatever... However I define that, it, it, it's, it's something that, that comes down to, I think, one central idea, which is, was I able to recognize the potency and the meaning and the purpose of every moment? Like, when I think about what the abundant life is, it's like no matter what I, where I am, whatever situation I'm, I'm facing, where, where place I am in the world, like, am I able to recognize the potency and the pregnancy of the moment? See, here's what I believe. I believe that God is at work right now in the world reconciling all things to himself and he's restoring the world as he brings forth new creation in our midst. I believe that this is what's happening right now even as I speak. And because I believe that, I want to see it. I don't want to miss out on that happening. I want to recognize it when it happens. I want to see the events in front of me for what they are, for the signs that they are to the thing that God is doing in every moment, every day. And what I found is one of the things that helps me in this is is to read really good writing. I think that the best writers have an uncanny ability to help us understand that, that moments have breadth and depth that we might otherwise miss out on, right? Like the best writers, doesn't matter who they are, but the best writers, the ones that we're drawn to, and, and, and I'm, <laughs> I want to be real, I'm not like talking about Dan Brown here, right? I'm not talking about a good fiction on the beach. I'm talking about like they're the best writers, those writers that stir something in us. Those writers have an uncanny ability to help us see, to see past what's actually happening and to help us, to help us get to the meaning and the purpose and the beauty. And, and they do that because they're paying attention. And so the reason that I read as much as I can is because it helps me to pay attention. It helps me to see in ways that I can't. It helps me to, to attend to what is rich. Barbara Brown Taylor, who is one such author for me, has this to write in her book, An Altar in the World. She says this, and this is a long quote, so bear with me. She says, people encounter God under shady oak trees on riverbanks, at the tops of mountains and in long stretches of barren wilderness. God shows up in whirlwinds, starry skies, burning bushes, and perfect strangers. But when people want to know more about God, the Son of God tells them to pay attention to the lilies of the field and the birds of the air, to women needing bread and workers lining up for their pay. Right there, I love that portion of it. I just never thought of Jesus' parables in that way. But that's, and 
forgive me if I haven't. I mean, it seems quite obvious, but when people want to know more about God, he points to the obvious things, the things that we all know, the ordinary things, the everyday things, the lilies of the field, the birds of the air, women needing bread, workers lining up. You want to know what God is like? Let me show you this very ordinary thing. Because Jesus is pointing out that even in this ordinary thing, you can see what God is all about. She goes on. Whoever wrote this stuff believes that people could learn as much about the ways of God from paying attention to the world as they could from paying attention to the world as they, I doubled up there, from paying attention to the world as they could from paying attention to Scripture. What is true is what happens, even if what happens is not always right. People can learn as much about the ways of God from business deals gone bad or sparrows falling, from, falling to the ground as they can from reciting the books of the Bible in order. They can learn as much from a love affair or a wildflower as they can from knowing the Ten Commandments by heart. The heavens proclaim the handiwork of God. Creation itself has been telling the story of God. And learning to pay attention to this and recognizing it and being present to it, I believe, is at the core of the abundant life. It recognizes that every moment, every interaction, every event, every relationship is pregnant with the stuff of God. Both the good and the bad things that happen are pregnant with the things of God. And so, the abundant life is the full life, the life that is full of joy and sorrow, the life that is full of laughters and tears, the life that is full of elation and pain. You see, too often what we want is we want the comfortable life, we want the easy life, we want the good life, and when we think about the abundant life, what we think about is a life that falls under those parameters, the life that falls under what makes us happy. And we'd rather avoid all this other stuff. And so the abundant life helps us avoid this stuff. But actually, actually what's true is the abundant life pushes us into whatever it is that's in front of us, the good or the bad. Because the truth of the matter is, and I've said this before, the truth of the matter is, is you cannot shut down your emotions on one or two sides of the spectrum. Because what we want to do is say, well, I'll only feel the good things, but I won't feel the bad things. But you can't do that. You can't numb yourself to the bad without also numbing yourself to the good. And so what happens is, is when we try to do that, when we try to pull back from the experience because that experience is too painful, that experience is too difficult, what ends up happening is we actually move away from the abundant life into the shallow life, the cheap life, the small life. The abundant life is not that. The abundant life is the full life with the full width and breadth of the human experience. And that feels dangerous. It feels dangerous to move into that kind of life. It feels risky to love that recklessly. It feels like we're opened up to more pain than we are to joy. And so the comfort we find is that we have a good shepherd. And the good shepherd says to us, this is the life that I have for you. This is the pasture I'm bringing you to. The thief comes to steal and destroy, to shrink your experience of life 
The thief comes to distract you. The thief comes to whisper the lie in your ear that that kind of life is too much. Or that simply being present isn't enough. Or that your emotions are too risky. The thief comes to steal and destroy because the thief does not want you to have the full life that I, the good shepherd, have promised you. But I will protect you. So listen to my voice and follow where I'm leading you. I will not abandon you and I'll lay down my life for you. So go. Go in. Go out. Go in and out. Experience it all. The fullness of it. Be overwhelmed by the beauty of the world. Be crushed by the pain and the injustice in it. Be taken aback by the power of love. Be reckless with your kindness. Forgive as you have been forgiven. Rest. Lay down and rest. I'm watching over you. This is the life that I've come to give you. May it exceed all your expectations. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would you would surround us with your spirit in such a way that we we are empowered and encouraged to use our imaginations. I pray that our imaginations would be kick-started. <laughs> they would be given a Holy Spirit spark so that we might begin to dream about that abundant life. Not, not the American dream life, but the, the true abundant life that you have for us. I pray that we would believe that it's true, that that's why you've come. That's why you laid down your life for us. That's why you offer us grace and mercy, so that we might experience that. I pray that as we dream, and as we're led by your voice, I pray that we would have the courage to follow, even when it feels dangerous or risky or or even a little crazy to do so. But I pray. I pray that as we follow your lead, our lives would be full. May they be in excess. May they be beyond what we could have anticipated. Because all around us, we see the kingdom of God. We see the new things that are happening. We see the reconciliation as you bring all of creation back to yourself. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.